Hello there, I'm Sen Lam, and welcome to Ear to Asia, where we talk with researchers who focus on the region with its diverse peoples, societies, and histories. Ear to Asia is a podcast from Asia Institute, the Asian research specialists at the University of Melbourne. In the mid-1960s, less than two decades after Indonesia won its war of independence from the Dutch, the young republic again saw bloodshed. What began as an anti-communist purge following a controversial coup by the military in 1965 resulted in the deaths of at least half a million Indonesians. It also ended the prospects of the once-powerful Indonesian Communist Party, or PKI, and brought in President Suharto and his autocratic rule known as the New Order. The New Order regime lasted over three decades. It's been half a century since the widespread killings in Indonesia, and democratically elected post-Sohato governments have started to take human rights seriously by establishing national human rights institutions, ratifying human rights treaties, and passing human rights laws. Yet, to date, there's been no redress for the crimes committed by the state and state-sponsored actors in 1965, well within living memory for many millions of Indonesians. In this episode of Ear to Asia, we explore what's being done to bring closure to the families of the victims and to the survivors in an environment where judicial, executive and political institutions cannot or will not bring satisfaction. Our guest today is Dr. Ken Sitiawan, a McKenzie Fellow at the University of Melbourne and based at Asia Institute. Dr. Sitiawan's body of research focuses on human rights violations and transitional justice in Indonesia. Transitional justice is being explained as the legal, political and civic activities to bring about redress and reconciliation of past human rights abuses. Ken, welcome to Ear to Asia. Thank you, Sen, for having me. Let's begin with the mass killings of 1965-1966. Who were the victims and do we know precisely how many people were killed? In the night of the 30th of September to the 1st of October 1965, a small group of conspirators of the Indonesian army abducted and murdered six high-ranking generals and a lieutenant. What happened was that Major General Suharto, who was at the time commander of the Army Strategic Reserve, took control and he and his allies attributed or blamed this event, which became to be known as the 30th of September movement, on the Indonesian Communist Party. The figures of the deaths also varied quite vastly. Do you think that's an indication of the complexities of the issue? I think that's definitely a reflection of what we actually do not know about the killings and the exact scale. Now, the exact scale and patterns of the killings varied widely by region in Indonesia, but they were particularly centred in Java, Bali and North Sumatra. So in general, we have that figure of half a million, but it could very well be more. And sometimes there is talk about whether this is a race or religion issue. The 1965 killings have been referred to as a massacre on the Indonesian Chinese, but the victims of the killings were overwhelmingly people, members of the Indonesian Communist Party, as well as those associated with the party. So we know about the victims. Who were the perpetrators? Were they mainly from the military? In some areas, yes, from the military. In other areas, it was state-sponsored militias or military-sponsored militias. In some areas, it was also Islamic organizations. So again, as I said, there's a wide variety in exactly who were the perpetrators. 
So you mentioned state-sponsored agents committing serious violations of human rights through the mass killings. Were there other forms of human rights violations committed during this period? Absolutely. I think that the mass killings have attracted a lot of scholarly as well as media attention. However, we do have to see the mass killings also in a broader context, which is the annihilation of the Indonesian left. And as part of that, we've also seen mass detention. Between 600,000 and 750,000 people were detained for years without trial following the events. There's been systematic sexual violence, the seizure of property and land, torture, forced relocation. So many families were also shattered in the events following 1965. Sohato rose to power in the wake of the purges and killings to emerge in 1967 as the second president of Indonesia. What was his role in the 1965-66 genocide? Suharto's role in the 1965 and 66 genocide, I think, can be regarded in various ways. As you just mentioned, he rose to the presidency in 1967. So Suharto effectively used the 30th of September movement to consolidate non-communist power in Indonesia, remove Sukarno from the presidency and then rise to the presidency himself. So he benefited mostly in a political sense from the 1965 events. However, Suharto was also in charge of the army and as part of the counter-operations to restore order, as that's how it was presented, violence against communists and sympathizers was unleashed. So he has a direct responsibility in that violence. Some of the army units of which he as commander of the military was in charge of were responsible for killings in central Java, whereas I already mentioned earlier, in some areas, killings were conducted by lower rank military officers and by civilian militias supported by the army. So there's no direct link, I suppose, but indirectly, yes. By mid-December 1965, Suharto and his allies have actually made statements about the need to bring the killings under control. But there's very little evidence that suggests that they actually did do this. And I think the bottom line is, is that Suharto's new order that, as you mentioned, ruled for more than 30 years, was actually based on mass murder. And that is a serious issue. Well, he ruled for over 30 years, a huge longevity in his rule, and he was only forced to resign after Indonesia's economy was ruined almost in the wake of the 1997 Asian financial crisis. How did the survivors and families of the victims of 65-66 deal with their trauma during President Sohato's new order, his long tenure? Dealing with the trauma during Suharto's long tenure was very difficult because the official version of Indonesian history did not make any mention of the mass killings or the mass detentions that occurred. Also, the people who survived but were associated with the Communist Party were really treated as second-class citizens. So they had very little opportunity to speak out and to do so was actually very dangerous because if you had once been arrested, you could be rearrested again. What was the role of the NGOs, the non-government organisations during this period, during the uh, new order? I think under the new order, civil society organisations had very limited opportunities to talk about these events, even less opportunities to actually do something about it. Of course, there were a number of NGOs who tried. However, I think we only see after the fall of Suharto really also a blossoming of civil society and also more openness including in the media, to talk about this past. Well, let's look at the post-Sohato period. After Sohato's resignation, of course, there seemed to be much activity in attending to human rights. 
May we begin with the kinds of institutions that were set up? What treaties were ratified? Did the governments at that time, the governments that followed New Order, did they seem serious in addressing these issues? If we talk about the extent to which governments are serious, I think we have to differentiate between what happens on paper and actual implementation. So if we go to that first step, we see that in the immediate post-1998 period, Indonesia actually came to ratify most of the core international human rights treaties. Now, this was also closely tied with demand for human rights as part of the broader reform movement in Indonesia. And the new government was also quite keen, at least symbolically, to take a distance from the Suharto regime. And in a way that it sought to do so was through the ratification of international conventions, drafting of new national laws, as well as the strengthening of existing institutions, as well as the establishment of new institutions. So what we see, for instance, in the post-1998 period is that Indonesia's Human Rights Commission, which was interestingly set up in 1993 was actually strengthened in its legal status and its mandate was expanded. New institutions were established, such as the Women's Rights Commission. We see the formulation of a national action plan on human rights that now occurs every five years. So in that sense, human rights became part of the state structure. However, implementation is always another story, especially when it comes down to human rights violations of the past. We've only seen a handful of cases being brought to ad hoc human rights courts, and those prosecutions were less than satisfactory, by which I mean that only low-ranked military officers were put on trial, and all of them were acquitted at various stages of the process. Also, the Attorney General's Department, which plays a key role in the prosecution of these cases, has repeatedly rejected findings of Indonesia's National Human Rights Commission. The military has also refused to cooperate with these investigations. So there is a gap between law and practice. And there was an attempt to establish a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. What was the outcome of that? Yes, in 2004, Indonesia actually enacted a law to establish a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Now, this was a very strongly contested law. In the drafting period, security forces actually objected to the notion of truth, preferring reconciliation, and even political factions more supportive of reform struggled with that notion of truth, and they preferred talking about accountability instead. So the actual law that came out of that drafting process was, of course, the outcome of political negotiation. And it was disappointing to many NGOs, particularly the stipulation that victims would only receive compensation in exchange for amnesty. Now, that particular stipulation was considered by Indonesian civil society organizations to support impunity rather than giving redress to the victims. What NGOs then did was actually to bring this Truth and Reconciliation Commission law to the Constitutional Court. But what then happened was that the Constitutional Court declared the whole law unconstitutional rather than the provisions that the NGOs had put forward. The consequence of that was that the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was off the table altogether and it hasn't been reinstated since. How crucial do you think a Truth and Reconciliation Commission was in terms of moving the nation forward post-Sohato, post-New Order? 
It is always difficult to speculate of how important it was, but a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, the institution itself, plays a very important role in redressing past abuses. At that point in time, there was nobody in Indonesia specifically charged with dealing with the legacy of violence. And we're not only talking about 1965 in that sense, but also with regard to other human rights violations that occurred. So not to have a body like that is, of course, a lack in the wider structure of human rights reform in Indonesia. You're listening to Ear to Asia, brought to you by Asia Institute of the University of Melbourne. Our guest today is Dr. Ken Sitiawan, a researcher of human rights violations and transitional justice in Indonesia. Ken Sitiawan, let's look at the Jokowi era now. The current president of Indonesia, Jokowi Dodo, popularly known as Jokowi, was elected in 2014. And you wrote two years after he took office that because he was perceived to have minimal links with the military, political and business elites, that there were hopes that his administration might act decisively to redress the human rights violations of 1965-66. How has the Jokowi administration done so far, do you think? If we first look at the figure of Jokowi himself, indeed there was hope that he would bring redress or would bring finalisation for these cases of past human rights abuses. Part of that was because of a campaign promise that he put forward and, as you mentioned, because he was perceived to have minimal links with existing elites. However, if we look closer, he does have links to the elites. For instance, Luhut Panjaitan, his business partner, has also served as coordinating minister for politics, law and security. And he's considered a military hardliner and has spoken out against an apology for 1965. Then we also need to look at the limited political support that Jokowi actually has. He's not a very powerful president. Also, his political party, the PDIP, the Indonesian Democratic Party of Struggle, is led by former president Megawati Sukarnoputri. So because he's a weak president and is also surrounded by people who have those links with, as we can say, those existing elites that might obstruct human rights reform, he needs to compromise. And that also means that even if he's committed, he's actually got very limited political space. So what we have seen, for instance, is that his government announced the establishment of a reconciliation committee that has to address these past abuses. The Jokowi government has also offered its support for a national symposium, which was good because for the first time people from different sides came together. But the recommendations of that symposium are yet to be released. And of course, President Joko Widodo also appointed an indicted UN indicted war criminal as the coordinating minister for politics, law and security. Do you think that in some ways reflect the president's attitude towards human rights? It is difficult to say whether the appointment of former General Viranto is a reflection of a low commitment to human rights or that it's uh, the outcome of political bargaining and negotiation. But I think it is problematic if someone is in such a powerful position and has actually been This put, is Viranto. This is Viranto, mm-hmm. yes. He's put also in the position to actually participate in that reconciliation committee. You can imagine that being involved and actually guilty of human rights violations himself, he's not really interested in bringing that to a satisfactory end. And of course, you've also focused in your work on digital publications that look at the legacy of the 1965-66 events. And I'm thinking of Ingat Enam Lima or Remembering 65, and also 
1965 setiap hari or 1965 every day. Tell us a little bit about these digital publications. I've recently seen a development where we've seen more digital storytelling platforms On 1965, these developments are part of much wider civil society actions on telling the story of 1965. It's been done through various ways, for instance, by survivors telling their stories, but also through theatre and art. So we see that while maybe at a political or national level, truth-telling remains very difficult, civil society has actually stepped in and is actually offering alternative ways of thinking about the past in a way that is different from official history narratives. Now, those digital storytelling platforms, as you just mentioned, Ingat Namlima, or Remembering 1965, as well as Setiap Hari, or actually its English language format is called Living 1965, These are all platforms where people can educate themselves about what happened in 1965, but also what happened in the years after and how individuals and people have been affected by these events. The young people and the newer generations, they're very active on social media and very much engaged on social media. Facebook, Twitter, other forms of social media, what has been the impact of social media? I think the emergence of these digital storytelling platforms in Indonesia is partially a response to the popularity of social media in Indonesia, particularly among the younger generation. Also, online or social media can be in some ways actually a safe place because we've seen also recently in Indonesia that meetings on 1965 film screenings, book discussions sometimes are subject to intimidation from the security forces or have had to be cancelled due to pressure of local authorities. So in that sense, social media actually provides a safe space because it's not a physical space. People can also access social media at any given time, no matter also where they are, which also is a reflection of increased people's mobility. But again, you know, it's difficult to measure the impact, especially as these digital storytelling platforms are relatively new. So we'll actually have to see of over time of how that relates to other discussions or political discussions. I see them more as very creative and imaginative projects that seek a dialogue and discussion, seek to raise awareness. And that, over time, may very well contribute to change. Kansa Tiawan, we're speaking in late 2016, and you have been researching human rights violations for more than a decade now. What motivated you to pursue this line of academic inquiry? The main reason is that I've got a personal connection with the 1965 events. My father was one of the very many people who was detained for years without trial, almost a decade. In the years following 1965, I was actually born after his release. So I don't have any memories of his detention as such. But his time in prison and the treatment that he received, that was very central to our family life and our family history. My father has always spoken openly about that. So I think for me, that interest in human rights and right and wrong, I actually always blame my parents for what I do because the question of right and wrong was actually so central to our family life that there was, for me, no way of escaping. It's not just that. When I started university, I just really became interested in the dynamics of human rights promotion. So I suppose that personal interest then was complemented with an academic and professional interest, and that is how I came to this line of research. 
You are also the co-founder of the digital publication Namlima Setiaphari or Everyday 65, in which one story from a survivor or relative of victims or, or activists is published every day, or at least you aim to do that. And then you talked about the oral history in your family. Do you think those two things combined, this kind of personal connection, does that make your work harder or easier, do you think? I think that personal connection sometimes makes it easier, but it can also make it harder. It's both because often the stories that you hear from people come very close to home. That said, I think that personal experience of human rights violations is very difficult not to be affected by it. It can be emotionally and also physically very draining. On the other hand, of course, it sometimes makes it easier because you've got that personal connection not only to your family members, but maybe other people who have experienced similar things. Sometimes that personal connection means that the people that you interview or you want to have a discussion with actually open up themselves more readily. It's a very profound experience to talk about people who have witnessed or survived such episodes of mass violence. Of course, they speak of the awful things that people do to one another, but they also speak about the will to survive. And that is, quite frankly, pretty amazing. Ken Sitiawan, thank you. Thank you very much. We've been speaking with Dr. Ken Sitiawan, a McKenzie Fellow at the University of Melbourne and based at Asia Institute. Ken currently conducts research in human rights violations and transitional justice in Indonesia. Year to Asia is brought to you by Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne, Australia. You can find more information about this and all our other episodes at the Asia Institute website. And be sure to keep up with every episode of Year to Asia by following us on iTunes, Stitcher or SoundCloud. Year to Asia is licensed under Creative Commons, copyright 2016, the University of Melbourne. I'm Sen Lam. Thank you for your company. And until the next time, Selamat Sejahtera. <laughs>